The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Gerard Manley Hopkins's extraordinary sonnet compresses together almost everything I want to say in drawing these lectures together. The poem not only articulates the victory of new creation over corruption and death, it embodies that victory by creating a fresh artwork that symbolizes the beauty it's describing. Let me explain where we're now going. I have described the social and cultural context of the modern quest for natural theology and the modern study of Jesus and the Gospels. And I've tried to show how this context has distorted both questions, not least by pulling them apart. And in particular, the modern world has kept heaven and earth apart and has split off past and present and future and has understood humanness in relation to those distortions. Instead, I have proposed historical arguments for a fresh understanding of Jesus and the Gospels in the Jewish world where the temple stood for the coming together of heaven and earth and where the Sabbath stood for the promised future arriving already in the present and where humans were seen as image bearers, as God reflectors, standing at the threshold of heaven and earth, of past and future. And in that light, I argued last time that the three main lines of modern natural theology are, as it were, shadowy forms of this triple understanding of the world and time and humanness. People have tried to argue from the world up to God on the basis of cosmology. Oh, look, the world we know implies a creator. Or of teleology, oh, the world we know seems to be the end result of a purpose. Or of the moral sense, our sense of good and evil must come from somewhere. But in particular, I've suggested that the moral sense should be seen as part of the larger category of vocation. And I then suggested that our vocational sense to do justice, to love beauty, to seek freedom and so on, they all appear to fail to let us down, but that their very failure points to the wounded God of the Gospels, inviting us to start with the natural world of failed human aspirations and to see on the cross the revelation of the true God. Now, neither in method nor in results does this follow the strict lines of an older natural theology. When that question was raised, not least by Lord Gifford himself, the context of the times in the 1880s introduced distortions. And even if we can't help introducing new ones ourselves, because we all do, we ought still to try to correct the ones that we can see. And I have argued throughout that part of our problem in our contemporary Epicurean atmosphere is to have banished from our agenda the one thing which makes us truly human and grounds all true knowing, namely love itself. And this necessarily results in a more many-sided natural theology which must involve praxis. If we renounce platonic escapism, we must embrace mission at every level. So, the last two lectures, lectures six and seven, explored resurrection and cross 
and pointed forward to new creation. And to understand how that fills out our overall picture, I build again on the fifth lecture about the promise that God's glory would fill the whole world. So the promise of the cosmic temple, full of God's glory. As I've explained before, Israel's tabernacle and temple were seen as pointers to a larger cosmic reality. Just as the glorious divine presence filled the building, so one day that same glory would fill the whole creation. The tabernacle and the temple were forward-looking signposts to that coming reality. And the prophets promised a, a new kind of filling, a saturation or soaking of the world with divine presence, glory and knowledge, as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? The waters are the sea. We saw, too, that the king, the coming king, is crucial in the temple and in the world. Solomon builds the temple and the divine glory fills it, but the coming king of Psalm 72 will do justice and mercy for the poor and the widow and the helpless, so that the divine glory may then fill the whole earth. And the present mystery of divine hiddenness in creation and the obvious pains and disasters and death itself within the world as it presently is, will finally be dealt with. That's how the implicit promise of Genesis 1 is to be fulfilled, bringing into the idea of Sabbath as the advance foretaste of the final promised state. The temple promise and the Sabbath promise converge at the notion of rest. God's glory will be at home in creation. And God's people reflecting his image will be at home with him. This is the promise of new creation. So what might this biblical vision of new creation have to say to natural theology? Well, it shakes things up for a start. The risk with some natural theology is to settle too easily for a static starting point and to aim too readily for a theology which, if not actually deist, is leaning that way. Because if you start with the world as some sort of a machine, you're likely to end with God as the celestial CEO who's in charge of that machine. And a natural theology like that might struggle to get beyond some kind of pantheism or panentheism, which, of course, has sometimes happened. Because if you agree too readily with Hopkins that the world is charged with the grandeur of God, if you say, yeah, that's fine, that's how I see it, you may find you can get rid of God and still enjoy the grandeur, as long as you don't notice what Hopkins says next. Because one of the problems with pantheism the world and God are basically the same. Or panentheism, well, everything is basically in God. The problems with those is that they cannot readily admit, let alone deal with, the problem of evil. Such schemes want the first three lines of Hopkins' poem without the next four. Why then do men now not wreck his, his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. You have to ignore that if you want to say that the world and God are basically the same thing, pantheism, or at least that everything is in God, panentheism, because the alternatives are bleak. 
If you eliminate the biblical eschatology of new creation, as so much theology and biblical studies has done in the last several generations, you're left with an escapist eschatology to be activated in the present by existentialism, it's Bultmann, or with the lie that we live in the best of all possible worlds, Leibniz, or with a shoulder-shrugging Epicureanism, this is how it is, get used to it, or with a Sartrean despair. If, in fact, a natural theology tries to find a full doctrine of God from within the present creation, then, in terms of the model I'm outlining, it looks as if it's trying to get the full eschaton in advance. It's trying to leap forwards to the final new creation while bypassing the darker route that the New Testament goes to get there. And this goes with the problem of a natural theology trying to discern the being and activity of God by rational inquiry alone, screening out once more the epistemology of love. Rational knowledge won't be able to grasp what is already true or to see the significance of the broken signposts we explored in the last lecture. And it certainly won't glimpse the eschatological promise of new creation. In response to this, a biblically informed natural theology must take the plunge and explore new creation and ask what light new creation sheds back on the present creation itself. And in particular, once we grasp the temple-like promises of the filling of creation with divine presence, we can begin to answer the old question, why a good God would make a world that is other than himself? How can he do that if he's good? The answer seems to be that God intends to dwell in this world as in a house, a heaven-earth dwelling place, and to fill it to overflowing with his presence and his glory. This won't mean obliterating it, as Schweitzer and others imagined, nor will it mean any diminishing of creation's creatureliness and peculiar identity and meaning. Rather, God's intention, it seems, is to enhance and celebrate creation's being what it is. It is not only humans who might say to God, you have made us for yourself. This is part of what is meant by God's love, the delighted celebration of and non-obliterating union with that which is other than himself. And that love calls forth an answering love, the larger category of which knowledge is a key component. So how will the creator fill his creation with his own presence? One answer already hinted at in Genesis 1 is with his wind or his spirit, the wind of God moving over the face of the waters, the spirit brooding over creation at the beginning. The God of creation is already to be known as the God who sends the spirit into the world to bring creation alive. And this is complemented at once in Genesis by the creation of humans in the divine image with God breathing his own breath, breath, wind, spirit, same word in Hebrew, of course, into their nostrils. The God of creation is to be known as the God who will work in his world through obedient humanity. And this is where, again, as in Psalm 72, the promise of new creation and the vocation of the king come together. 
And with this we have, I suggest, an alternative to the famous proposal by Jürgen Moltzmann that we should retrieve the rabbinic doctrine of Zimzum, in which God retreats into himself so that there may be cosmic space for a creation other than himself. I think that's the wrong way around. Much better to suggest that out of sheer exuberant creative love, God creates a world which is other than himself in order eventually to be all in all, allowing creation to be fully itself while being filled with his glorious presence and thereby becoming more than it could ever be by itself. Now, the key Genesis-based roles of spirit and the image-bearing humans become central in the New Testament. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1. And the spirit is the arabon, the down payment of the inheritance, which is not simply our future resurrection, but the inheritance as a whole, the entire renewed cosmic order of Romans 8. As Paul explains in 2 Corinthians, the spirit-filled church reflecting the glorious image which is Christ himself is the pilot project for new creation. Now, beware, the closer you get to that vision, the more Paul emphasizes suffering. The dark powers though defeated on the cross, will not give up without a struggle. But that too seems to be part of the point. Now all this brings me to the central leitmotif for this lecture, the waiting chalice. And since I'm mentioning drinking, let me just get some water here. Supposing you had no knowledge of the Christian tradition or its characteristic symbolic actions, and supposing you then saw in an antique shop a beautiful silver chalice, elegant yet powerful in form, delicately decorated with this or that motif, perhaps the cross or the tree of life or flowers or perhaps of Passover or the Last Supper. You would know it was important and full of meaning. People don't make beautiful things like that just on a whim. Someone took care over it. Someone paid a lot of money for it. You might figure out that such a vessel might have some sort of ceremonial purpose. There would be clues pointing in the right direction. So the question raised by such an object, coming upon it unknown, is similar to the question raised in the previous lecture by the seven broken signposts, justice, beauty, and the rest. We know they're important, but we can't quite figure them out. But when we look back from the crucifixion, or from the resurrection of the crucified one, then we get it. So too here, when we hear the story of Jesus' crucifixion, and particularly when we discover that when Jesus wanted to tell his disciples what his death would mean, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. Then we discover, looking back in the light of the resurrection, that what our beautiful chalice had been hinting at all along was true. It was a genuine pointer to a unique event and a unique ritual recalling that event. So for a follower of Jesus, the empty chalice has a complex beauty. It is beautiful in itself, even to an outsider. But for us, it is all the more beautiful because we know what it's to be filled with and why. The wine which will fill it 
to be shared among Jesus' followers will convey his death and the personal meaning of that death to the worshippers. As they drink it, they will think with Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. This action and this meaning do not detract from the beauty the chalice had when empty. Those who know the ultimate intention will appreciate the beauty all the more. Now, all this is, of course, metonymy as well as metaphor. The chalice is both an analogy for the point I'm making and a quintessential part of the point itself. As it stands, the present natural world has a power and a beauty and a strangely evocative quality. The world is charged with the grandeur of God, like the empty chalice inviting awe and respect, even from the outsider. The presence of horror and suffering and apparent futility in the world, however, the brokenness of the signposts in my earlier illustration, has led some, including sadly some Christians, to suppose that the beauty and the power is a mere illusion or distraction. Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. We are in a world full of idols. So something, let's renounce the seductive beauty and power and let's escape. Plato stands ready to help us, to explain that the beauty and the power were just the play of shadows cast by a different light, and he will help show us the way out. Much Western Christianity goes that route without questioning, but the biblical eschatology of new creation resists that temptation. The outpoured blood is the sign that the idols have been defeated, that the suffering of the present time is not worth comparing with the coming glory that creation itself will be set free from its slavery to decay to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. Creation is beautiful then, ultimately because it is to be filled with the divine glory. That's why it's powerful and also why as it stands it is puzzling and incomplete. The rejection of natural theology in some quarters thinking obviously of Bart in the 1930s, is a reaction against those who, seeing the beauty of the chalice, want to worship the chalice itself. The answer is not to throw away the chalice, but to celebrate the Eucharist. The wine itself joins heaven and earth, rejecting the Platonic division. We should perhaps say a bit more about the kind of filling of creation that the New Testament envisages. I have mentioned Romans 8, and that passage, precisely the supposedly apocalyptic passage which Bultmann found so impenetrable, remains important. There Paul envisages God doing for the whole cosmos, for the whole cosmos at the last, what he did for Jesus at Easter, with the suffering and prayer of the church in the meantime as the sign of sharing Jesus' messianic victory over the defeated but still dark powers. The temple overtones in Romans 8 are powerful. Paul's language about the indwelling spirit echoes the idea of Yahweh's dwelling in the temple. And the promise of resurrection is then to be understood as the promise of the ultimate rebuilt temple. 
The inheritance motif, too, carries temple overtones. The temple was the focal point of the promised land. The inheritance gained after the exodus, after the victory over the sea monster. Remember the old mythological structure to the basic narrative of creation, exodus, land, temple building. And at the heart of Romans 8, Paul speaks of prayer, the prayer of unknowing, the prayer that happens when it's all gone so horribly wrong that you don't know what to pray for. The prayer, nevertheless, inspired by the Spirit and understood by the Father, constituting those who pray as the younger siblings of the crucified firstborn son, through their sharing, Paul says, of his suffering and glory. They are thereby conformed to his image, enabled to be genuine human beings at the heart of the cosmic temple. It's what Romans 8 is all about, though sadly not all commentators say it like that. These humans then reflect the Creator's glory, as in Psalm 8, in their stewardship of creation. According to Psalm 8, humans are made a little less than the angels in order to be crowned with glory and honor, with all things put in subjection under their feet. That's the glory Paul is speaking of in Romans 8, which is why, when humans are finally redeemed and resurrected, why creation itself will be redeemed, and why intercession in the present is part of the mysterious means by which that glory vocation is exercised in the present. And this is then summed up in the priestly intercession of all creation through the high priest himself, Jesus, towards the end of Romans 8. What you have there is cosmology, eschatology, and image-bearing anthropology. Heaven and earth together formed in the pattern of the crucified Messiah. Glory even in the present in the midst of suffering. No wonder Romans 8 is such a powerful chapter. When I was Bishop of Durham, I often used to ask clergy when I was interviewing them for parish appointments that if they had to go to a desert island and were allowed to take two chapters from the New Testament with them, you know how it works in desert island discs, you're allowed to take a book, but it can't be the Bible or Shakespeare. I would say, so tell me, what, which chapters would you take? And I would say, you've already got Romans 8 and John 20, because those would be high on the list of, of many people for, for chapters which sum up what it's all about. So Romans 8, but then we find the same picture, the new creation as the new temple, with renewed humans playing their part in it in Revelation 21 and 22. The echoes of Genesis 1 and 2 are obvious throughout those amazing chapters. But it hasn't always been so obvious that the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21 and 2 is pictured as an enormous holy place, a giant cube like the inner sanctum in the tabernacle or temple. The new heavens and the new earth are the new temple, and the city of the new Jerusalem is the new holy of holies. That's why there's no temple in the city, just as there is no Sabbath in the new age. What went wrong with the original creation, its corruption and decay and death, has been put right. And what was preliminary and pointing forward in the original creation has now reached its goal. And, as you'd expect, in Revelation, the redeemed human beings are now at last what they were made to be, the true 
image bearers, the royal priesthood. Romans, Revelation, you see the same picture in John's Gospel, particularly with those overtones of Genesis and Exodus in the prologue. In the beginning, dot, 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 we know this is a new Genesis. The word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. We know this is a new Exodus. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son has made him known. This pulls the whole thing together, focusing on the temple image in the incarnation. We gazed upon his glory. Jesus' own body becomes the new temple, which will then be destroyed and raised up, as he says, cryptically and puzzlingly in chapter 2. That's part of the point of John's Easter story, which is framed in a garden, but with the outflowing water of life expressed not through rivers flowing out of that garden, but through the commissioning of the disciples by the Spirit, which in turn echoes the promise in John 7 that rivers of living water would flow out of the believer's heart. There's a long, complicated footnote there about how you construe that bit in John 7, but I will spare you that for this evening. The whole gospel, in other words, is about creation and new creation, with that new creation seen as the fulfillment, not the abolition of the old. This is the point. Once the ruler of this world has been cast out, then creation can become what it was meant to be. Now, all this and much more, since these are just tiny snapshots of a major biblical theme, give us a clue to what may be going on in some of the normal debates about natural theology. If you try and start with the present world and argue up to God, you will find that in John's language, the world has been taken over by a dark power. All is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. But that isn't Hopkins's last word, and it's not John's last word either. So what again about Paul? We looked in the fourth lecture at 1 Corinthians 15, where the resurrection has already installed Jesus as the messianic Lord of the world. In verses 20 to 28, the whole picture comes rushing together. And instead of a supposed apocalyptic abolition of the world, we have the genuine apocalyptic fulfilling of it, literally a filling full, completing the Genesis project, celebrating the Davidic purpose and echoing the Isianic hope. The Messiah rises as the first fruits. Then those who belong to the Messiah will rise at the time of his royal arrival. And then comes the end, the goal, when he hands over the kingly rule to God the Father, when he has destroyed all rule and authority and power. So when everything is put in order under him, then the Son himself will be placed in proper order under the one who placed everything in order under him so that God may be all in all. Now that passage is complex. It's easy to get distracted by the turns and twists of the last phrases from the final climax, the final phrase, but that's what matters. Paul's point is that God, the one God, will be all in all and will arrive at that goal as you would expect from Genesis 1, through the work of the image bearer, the true Adam, the ultimate king who comes to help the poor and needy. Heaven and earth will be one. The future will have arrived at last 
and the true human already enthroned will then have completed his task. Paul's proposal here doesn't have a name, but it deserves one. The word panentheism, the idea that everything is in God, expresses the opposite of what Paul says. I don't normally like neologisms, but we might propose theenpanism, the view of God being all in all. Panentheism, like its tired old cousin pantheism itself, has glimpsed a truth, something about the world and God getting together, but has, over against Epicureanism, but has seen it the wrong way round and tried to arrive at it by a shortcut. We are not there yet. Paul's vision is of an eschatological theenpanism, the ultimate filling of the chalice with the rich outpoured wine of his love, the powerful messianic love, which has already resulted in his inaugurated rule and which will go on loving and ruling until all the dark powers that still tyrannize us, including ultimately death itself, are put under his feet. Pantheism and panentheism offer an over-realized eschatology which does indeed reflect, dimly, the creator's eventual intention. That's why they're often popular with people who are escaping from forms of Christian dualism. But they ignore the ongoing reality of evil, perhaps because, whether consciously or not, they want to avoid the only solution, namely the cross. But the cross is the only route to the promised goal. Now, it's hard to hold all these things in your minds together, to put into the same sentence or paragraph the visions of creation renewed in Romans 8, the new city in Revelation 21, the spring garden and the outpoured spirit of John 20, and the final victory and ultimate filling in 1 Corinthians 15. But we cannot doubt that the early Christians were consciously retrieving, in the light of Jesus and the Spirit, the biblical theology of cosmos and temple, which I sketched earlier. And they were doing so with a conscious and biblically rooted vision of Jesus as the truly human one, the true image, and of his followers indwelt by the Spirit as themselves, Colossians 3, renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator, a renewal characterized by love both as ethics and as epistemology. At the heart of early Christian theology, we find precisely the temple, the cosmological overlap of heaven and earth, and the great Sabbath, the eschatological overlap of past, present, and future. Both of them fo focused on Jesus and the Spirit, both of them offering a vision of the world and God and of the relation between them which enables us to open up the modern questions of natural theology in a whole new way. And this leads me now to some detailed proposals for taking the argument and the project forwards. There are five areas to explore. Time forbids more than a brief glance at each. As often happens at this stage of a course of lectures, you discover that actually this should have been 16 lectures or maybe 24, but you've been very patient. That's quite enough for one term. 
The first of the five areas is the mission of God, the missio dei itself. The Spirit calls and equips the church to a mission which is aimed at the Creator's purpose to fill his world with his glory and to rest and reign within his proper home. This original purpose, diverted though not thwarted by human idolatry and sin, was redirected into the Abrahamic mission to rescue God's human creatures so that through them the creational purpose might be accomplished. Not, you note, as with Platonistic schemes, to rescue humans from the world, but to rescue humans for the world. The Missio Dei is therefore itself part of natural theology, since the task of bringing healing and justice to the world, including not least the task of holding the powers of the world to account, come back to that, is one of the church's vital ways of saying that the present creation matters, so it's worth putting it right, rather than saying, as the church has so often done, that the present creation doesn't matter, so we can clear off and leave its putting right to others. This is part of the significance of Jesus' healings in the Gospels, not least those that happen on Sabbaths. This is what it looks like when the great Sabbath arrives in the present. The forgiveness of debt and the release of the captives. Every healing is a reaffirmation of the goodness of the present body. Just as the resurrection itself reaffirms the goodness of the original creation. Every work of justice and liberation, every fresh telling of truth or wise exercise of power, every glimpse of beauty, experience of spirituality, or embrace of love. In other words, every time that the broken signposts turn out to have been telling the truth after all, the quest of natural theology is affirmed. Every time the chalice is filled afresh with the sacramental wine, we realize both why we find it evocative before and why it was nevertheless incomplete as it stood. To repeat, if all you had was the chalice, you couldn't deduce the Eucharist, though you might guess at something like it. But once you know the Eucharist, you see that the chalice was pointing in the right direction. So hand in hand with the missionary tasks of healing and justice, second goes the artist's vocation. I use the word artist in its broadest sense to include all the arts, music, writing, dance, etc. As we saw, the Enlightenment split off aesthetics from the mainstream of theological culture. Actually, it's often been perceived the other way around. Split off theology and let beauty go on and do its own thing. So you get romanticism, the replacement of the sacred with the sublime, and so on. But if you downplay creation, you downplay artistic celebration of creation. Ever since then, and I've had people tell me this again and again after I've done lectures on the subject. Christian artists have been frustrated that most of their fellow believers don't know why what they do matters. Art and music have been turned into mere decoration rather than being part of natural theology itself, a way of responding to the world which can speak like the broken signposts and the waiting chalice of the creator's true intention.
in glimpsing simultaneously the beauty and the horror of the present world and in drawing our attention to that combination and making something new out of it with its own beauty and poignancy, artists are telling us that the world truly is charged with the grandeur of God, even though the soil is now bare. In art, one can both express and embody the truth of Hopkins's poem, holding together the sudden flaming out of glory and the tragic disappointment of a world spoiled by man's smudge and smell. And art can and does point forward thereby to the goal. Much more can be said about that. The same is true, thirdly, in the sciences. Here, unlike many of my predecessors, I pretend to no expertise whatever. I did precisely one year of physics and chemistry at school, and I wasn't actually bottom in physics, but I was in chemistry. There we are. Many still see our modern split world under the heading science and religion, two spheres which supposedly never meet. And many still assume that modern science has disproved God and has established secularism for all time. I was reading the other day the autobiography of G.M. Trevelyan, the great Cambridge historian who ended up as Master of Trinity College, and he speaks casually of having suddenly discovered as a young man that Darwin had disproved Genesis. Oh, and so all that stuff just goes out of the window. A great, amazing intellect like that, being reduced to such a facile non-truth, extraordinary. But when we recognize the Epicurean assumptions as what they are, the scientist's vocation re-emerges in terms of thinking God's thoughts after him, not indeed to imply that one could deduce everything about God from what we could weigh or measure, but to sense the grandeur of which Hopkins speaks. In particular, as many have pointed out, Jesus' use of creational imagery in the parables and elsewhere might indicate ways forward. Think about it. Jesus suggests that the kingdom of God comes like a sower sowing seed. Some going to waste, snatched by birds, trampled underfoot. Some finding good soil and bringing forth a great crop. What does that make you think of? Ought we to be then surprised to discover that the cosmos seems to have originated with an enormous broadcast sowing of life potential, much of which appears to go to waste, but some of it takes root and produces life as we know it. That parable holds all sorts of things together. And in this light, we should nuance the commonly held idea of scripture and nature as two books. That language can suggest that scripture and nature are simply repositories of parallel information. But the world of creation isn't simply a large pile of unsorted data. It presents itself to us, as I've argued, as a waiting chalice, asking a mute question, beautiful yet hauntingly incomplete. It sets up signposts, but we can't tell at once where they lead. Thus, if creation is a book, it isn't a reference book like a dictionary or a railway timetable. It's more like a play or a poem, or indeed the kind of music which leaves us with a simultaneous sense of completion and of incompletion, a signpost pointing ahead into the darkness, even while telling us that there, in the darkness, there is truth which cannot presently be spoken. Or perhaps creation is like that line from Wittgenstein's Tractatus, when all is said and done in the book's six main sections, the seventh is simply a haunting sabbatical sentence, for von man nicht sprechen kann, darüber muss man schweigen. 
if creation is a book, that's the kind of book I think it is. And the Bible, too, isn't the kind of book you can simply look things up in, except in a fairly trivial sense. To use the Bible like that would be like only ever listening to Classic FM. We need the bigger picture. The Hebrew scriptures tell the story of hope and creation and covenant and Sabbath and temple and promise and exile and hope renewed. The Christian scriptures pick up that story and tell the still open-ended narrative of covenant renewed, creation restored, the great Sabbath and the new temple and the surprising but joyful reversal of exile and, yes, the hope for eventual completion. The idea of books you can look things up in is, after all, a somewhat 18th century idea. It steps back from the epistemology of love. Love invites us to make the story our own, to live within it, to find our place, even if it's a dark and difficult place, between the but now of 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and the not yet of verse 28. Once that point is made, then the two books might converge on another level because creation poses not just a question but a challenge. Where do you belong in the story? What response will you make to the world's strange mixture of glory and tragedy? Creation and scripture both offer a possibility of vocation. And these may converge. And if and when they do, we are back at the broken signposts on the one hand and the waiting chalice on the other. Room here for much further exploration. My fourth point, which again deserves far more attention, has to do with politics. The debates about natural theology and about Jesus and the Gospels have, as we saw in the earlier lectures, been radically shaped by the rich mixture of philosophy and culture and politics from the French and American revolutions to the turbulent history of Germany through two terrible wars and yet more horrific acts of genocide and terrorism. And it isn't just that these force us to think about the great questions afresh, though they do, it's actually a two-way street. People's minds are formed into political will and ambition, not least by the ideologies and theologies and philosophies which they embrace. I've written a certain amount about this elsewhere, not least in my little book, God in Public, but I emphasize here the ongoing importance of Psalm 72 with its vision of the true ruler doing justice and mercy. And to this we must add the central vocation of the church in the power of the Spirit, as in John 16, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Part of natural theology is to affirm the good and God-given structures of the world, but to affirm them by support without collusion and critique without dualism. Let me say it again. Support without collusion and critique without dualism. We all too easily mirror the facile assumptions that either the powers must be getting it all right or that they must be getting it all wrong. Think of Harnack in 1914 or Barth in 1918. Life is more complicated than that. Actually, Harnack and Barth are more complicated than that, but I hope you see what I'm saying. The church needs to pray for wisdom and discernment 
to state clearly where the broken signposts are supposed to lead and to speak fresh truth to power, even if and especially if power doesn't want to hear it, when the dark powers are again doing their worst. My fifth and final point translates the image of the waiting chalice from metaphor into metonymy. In other words, into a refreshed sacramental theology. The sacraments ought to embody a wise, scripturally resourced, natural theology. In scripture, heaven and earth overlap and interlock. God's future comes to meet us in the present, and the image-bearing humans, the royal priesthood, share in that double overlap, exercising their human vocation in bringing it to birth again and again. And this is the context in which sacraments make sense. I suspect there's a whole book on sacramental theology waiting to be written that would expound all this, though it wouldn't surprise me to find that some Russian Orthodox theologian has already written it. So please tell me if you know of it. The combination of space and time and image which I've explored might then give birth to the other missing dimension, matter itself. Could it be that God's matter and our matter could overlap and share the same space? That, of course, is what the Incarnation affirms and thereby legitimates, I think, a view of baptism and Eucharist at least, perhaps other events as well, as moments when not only space and time but also matter come together. The world is indeed charged with the grandeur of God, charged as with a solemn vocation, charged as in a battery. And there are moments when it will flame out or gather to a greatness. And I glimpse here again a two-way argument. The biblically refreshed version of natural theology for which I've tried to argue might give rise to fresh views of the sacraments and the sacraments themselves, which like music, form their own unique language to which all theology is mere program notes. The sacraments themselves might help us explore afresh the interface and the inferences between God and creation. So to my conclusion, the fresh mandate. My overall argument has been that when we look back like the two on the Emmaus Road, we are compelled by Jesus' resurrection to reevaluate not only past history, but also past observations of the world. The resurrection makes sense, not least because it explains why the broken signposts seemed so important and how the reality to which they were pointing is now opened up. And the reality in question turns out to be not, I think, the God of perfect being, not the prime mover or the ultimate architect, but the God of utter self-giving love. And this explains two things right off. First, you'd never be able to see this from within the Faustian epistemologies that have dominated our culture. That's why a rationalist apologetic could never attain the full natural theology some have hoped to use it for. You can't get to the promised land without crossing the Jordan. But second, the richer, more rounded epistemology of love can not only explain natural theology in retrospect, yes, the hints and puzzles were true signposts, even if broken, 
but it can do so in a way which breaks out of the subjective trap. Oh, it's true for us, but you will never see it unless you join the club, the magic circle. No. As the epistemology of love grasps the ontology of love, in other words, recognizing the ultimate truths of the Trinitarian creation and its eschatological intent, discovering the existential reality of that love for oneself, so this generates the missiology of love. And this mission, by the Spirit, produces genuine and compelling signs of new creation in the world. It opens hearts and minds to glimpse the truth previously invisible to those blinded by the idols they have worshipped. Neither rationalism, here's an argument you can't refute, nor romanticism, here's something to warm your heart strangely, Neither of those will do, though both offer something important. What matters is new creation coming to birth in whatever form, coming forward like the Sabbath to meet us in the middle of time. The resurrection and the Spirit therefore launch the mission through which the earlier hints of creation's glory will come to expression. The waiting chalice, empty and puzzling, pointed to a future filling. But a full chalice likewise raises a question. What's it being filled for? The full Eucharistic chalice speaks powerfully back into the world of creation. It speaks of the love of God given afresh for the life of the world and the Spirit of God now breathed out into the world. That in the present age will only ever be partial and fitful. As the defeated powers do their best to strike back, things will remain apparently ambiguous until the final moment when God is all in all. But it would be foolish disobedience not to recognize that from Pentecost onwards, this filling is not only something that happens mysteriously to the church, never as something we grasp or control, but always as a fresh and free gift, but also something that happens through the church, whether in the building of hospitals or the writing of songs or the practical care of the poor. The Missio Dei works through self-giving love in the world. It indicates in self-authenticating fashion that the world had indeed always been charged with God's grandeur, that the deadly tramp of generations had spoiled so much but could not thwart the Creator's purposes that the ultimate reality in the world is the self-giving God revealed in Jesus, active afresh through the Spirit, inviting the world to know him with the epistemology of love, the covenant love which responds to the covenant promises. That is how the dawn of new creation and with it the fresh affirmation of the original creation is to be discerned. And for all this, Nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. <laughs>